Black Wealth Matters Episode 6, Yami Rose, founder of Of Color. One of the crazy things today that I've noticed is it's not even so much the exploitation that often happens, but it's really an issue of access. You know, the crazy thing is that you're less likely to even have the quote unquote privilege of being exploited today by a bank because you have a real dearth of financial services companies where people of color even live. Up next in our Black Wealth Matter series is Yami Rose, founder of Of Color, a new digital financial wellness platform that focuses on providing content and banking tools built specifically around how people of color save, spend, and build their legacies differently. It's something that traditional financial services companies have not really addressed. And Yami knows this intimately well, having worked for a number of big financial services companies throughout his career. He spent nearly two decades decades at the intersection of financial services and communications, marketing, focusing on financial wellness. He's a prolific writer as well. Yami's written extensively on the racial wealth gap in places like Black Enterprise, The Root, and Money.com. In our conversation, we talk about what you heard a little snippet here about some of the structural hurdles and holes financial institutions and banks have created, making it more difficult for Black individuals and African Americans to save, to invest, build wealth, and how his new company of color is providing that alternative and way to provide members more access to quality financial products and services. And we talk about why words matter in this movement. You know, Yami has an issue, a good issue, with the term racial wealth gap. Should we change what it's called? Yami Rose, welcome to So Money. Thank you for having me, Farnoosh. It's so nice to have you on the show. You've been such a supporter of my work over the years. And and now with the Black Wealth Series and you starting a business of color, what a great time to have you come on and tell us about (laughs) all the good work that you're up to. And also your experiences as a Black individual working your way up through the financial services industry. Um, uh, you know, first off, as you've been listening to this series too, I know you uh, were really excited about it. We have talked at length about some of the historical events that have prevented Black people from creating wealth, whether we're talking about redlining, which impacted housing, whether we're talking about the GI Bill, which the promise was denied to millions of Black war veterans. Fast forward to, let's say, the last 10, 15 years when you were really kind of in the thick of working in corporate America for the financial services industry. What was your experience on the inside as far as some of these blockades that the financial services industry really created preventing wealth within the within the black community. Yeah, so I think in many ways capitalism is going to do what it does, right, which is just make more capital. So a lot of these companies will argue that, you know, they're just trying to serve general needs of all Americans, but without specifically looking at the disparities in income, the disparities in wealth between Black Americans and white Americans, you know, they're, if they're not seeing that, then they're not creating solutions to, to meet specifically their needs. I think one of the crazy things today that I've noticed is it's not even so much the exploitation that often happens, but it's really an issue of access. So, you know, the crazy thing is that you're less likely to even have the quote unquote privilege of being exploited today by a bank because you have a real dearth of financial services companies where people of color even live. Um, I wrote a piece about this recently. The the latest FDIC data shows that, you know, 17% of black households do not even have a bank account at all. And of course, there are, there are 35% fewer banks in African-American neighborhoods than white neighborhoods. 
And on top of that, the banking options that are available in the first place are more likely to be out of reach for the average person of color. I think the the minimum balance required to open an account is often higher in black neighborhoods than majority white ones. So what I have personally seen then is that alternative financial services companies have kind of stepped in to, to fill the void. And what they're doing is they're, of course, you know, we're all familiar with the pay lenders, they're charging exorbitant fees, and that is in turn holding people of color back. So to answer your question, I think it, it's fair to say that the financial service industry needs to have a real reckoning on how it's helped to widen or perpetuate the racial wealth gap. Mm-hmm. Um in my view, I think what's really needed is some kind of a separate system um, that is purposeful in helping people that are greater credit risk. And, you know, this would be probably a system backstopped by the government. I think that average American, especially people of color, need to also be too big for fail. I mean, this isn't, to full clarity, this isn't a, a unique thing. This is something that, you know, scholars such as Ohio State Professor Derek Hamilton was long championed the use of the postal service, for example, is a distribution model for this new kind of bank. And I think it can go a long way towards equity. And even from within the industry, so the financial services industry is notorious for being predominantly white, male, not many women, not many people of color relative to all the people in power, especially in within these companies, yep. the, the executives, the officers. If you were to give advice to someone who wants to become the Amy Rose, you know, of uh, of all these great places that you worked, VP level, person who is black, person of color, what would be your advice? What 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 was your experience? So yeah, so some context uh, first on my experience. So I I moved here from Jamaica twenty years ago, and um, like like many people from the Caribbean, I came here from a majority black country. I I thought I was studied in what overt racism looks like. You know, somebody calls you the N word, but really blind to the to the way more dangerous outcomes of structural and really unyielding racial bias, especially in the American context. You know, race is more tied to money and class in Jamaica, and the lighter you are, the wealthier you're perceived to be, and this has its roots in colonialism. But also, you know, we were able to see black leaders at every level of society in every field. So it was not really until living here and starting a family here and trying to raise two little beautiful black girls that I really see what it means to have so much determined by the color of your skin from birth. If you are poor in Jamaica, you can still, you can rent a suit and you can momentarily exist in another context, but you can't really take a break from being black in America. So you constantly see what people who, people who buy into this concept of whiteness uh, feel you are because black does not past scientific muster. There's no genetic test for blackness. It's a social construct. And that can cause some real PTSD to, to grow up and to always, always feel in, in ever so subtle ways that you're an other and to see these systems and institutions around you reinforce that otherness. It, it, it's crushing and you never get to escape that. So I owe a real debt to all of the African-American descendants of slaves that paved the way for me. So my career specifically, you know, in a weird way, I was accepted more precisely because I was perceived to be a, a quote unquote different kind of black American. You know, you're, you're one of the good ones. You went to an Ivy League school, you spoke with an accent, you have what they call executive presence. But the, the flip side of that is that there's always another black person who's not advancing because, you know, there may be only so much room at the top for people of color. My advice would be don't let the game be played on their terms bring your whole self to work because you know when you do that that's when you will really 
progress in terms of being able to offer true value and don't be afraid to speak up and don't be afraid to call certain things out if you see things that are wrong. But in some, I guess overall, I would say that a lot of what I personally encountered was regular people trying to eke out and hold on to some kind of economic advantage in what really amounted to a tournament-like system. So there was definitely racial bias along the way, but also a lot of capitalism just doing what it does. Well, you're the first to say that words matter. You've written about this extensively. I really appreciated what you wrote uh, last year, just this idea of how you know some words are just inadequate in this movement. When we talk about, for example, the racial wealth gap, you say that that is uninspiring. It doesn't really instigate change. What is a better term? And why, first of all, do you find it problematic? And, and then what would you prefer to call it? Yeah, so I think in 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 that um, article in Black Enterprise, it was a little bit tongue in cheek, but um, also very very serious in that you are you're dealing with a very serious matter. And I think I brought up the example of the Guardian changing how they you know talked about climate change, and they they, they framed it as the, the climate crisis. So I'm a I'm a PhD dropout and in, in communications and study for a long time how ideas are spread and shared. And, you know, it's, it's, it, that always struck me as just not enough, you know, talking about just the racial wealth gap. And I think I call it something like the postulant cavity of economic apartheid, because that's where we are. We are, we are in essentially an economic apartheid. You know, I've, I've had a lot of people ask me my perspective over the last few weeks um, about what's happening in America. And, and, and many, have lamented with sadness that you know America's lost her way, and and I offer a quick correction and an observation. This this is her way, right? The the founding documents of this country were clear in defining my political value as three fifths of that of free whites. So the romanticized version of immigration, I'm, I'm an immigrant, is kind of misremembered as give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. But from the 19, from the 1790 Naturalization Act onwards, you know, that was open to free whites. Um, so America was never really built for equality, much less equity. And, you know, mo- most are surprised to learn that I'm actually more uncomfortable when people are not freaking out about justice and economic apartheid because the status quo is, is horrible for people of color every day. What is your opinion on something like reparations? You talked in your article about how income is really important and, and there are some solutions to providing what might be, you could call it reparations, others might just call it like leveling the playing field. What do you think about giving all Black individuals more income? And then what are some other ways to sort of rectify the, all the wrong that has happened that, that the country has inflicted upon this, this community? I think the first step is recognizing it is what it is, which is a breach of contract, right? So it, it, there was essentially a breach of the constitutional contract with, with Black Americans. And I think first going there, and Ta-Nehisi Coates, with his great essay, The Case for Reparations, went a long way in allowing us to have this conversation with the R word in polite company. And let's make no mistake, we started along this path after the Civil Rights Movement, after the Civil Rights Act was signed. We had about almost 20 years of public policies that saw color, that were saying, okay, people of color in this country were wronged. And it was it, it, it had government support and legal support. I mean, you're talking about FHA laws that is discriminated against Black individuals. You're talking about the GI Bill. Essentially, explicit economic advantage 
that was provided to um, white Americans that left people of color behind. And that ultimately created a strong white middle class and relegated people of color to an underclass. Um, so I think first, you know, there's a, I talk about the three P's in terms of what we, we need to, to really tackle this. And there, you know, people is one of the P's, right? So you need people to, to first recognize that something wrong happened in this country and be able to recognize that and say, okay, we're not just comfortable enough with saying, okay, let's stop doing that. But let's also in contractual law, there's a remedy, right? So we need a remedy for that. And, you know, people talk about reparations now as that remedy, and that can take many forms. It doesn't have to be helicopter money. It doesn't have to be money falling from the sky. It can be in terms of economic provision of economic opportunity. It could be in terms of social program. The other two Ps there are policy and the, the purse, right? So on the policy side, I think Americans fight against big government all the time, which is just code for entitlement programs that focus on inequity, as opposed to ineffective government that works to create a better society. But the, no, the gaps between the 1% and the 99% are so large and we're so thirsty that we don't have the will to see effective policy play out. So after the civil rights movement, Reagan started to dismantle that. So racist policy got us here and we need equity focused policy to make things right. And the policies that govern our interactions in certain spaces can go a long way. So then there's the other P, which is the purse, right? So again, we talked about the breach in the contract and we need uh, corporations, which we're starting to see now, come in and say, well, hey, you know, we have a responsibility in society to make sure that we, um, you know, if, if, if we benefited in some way from the racial wealth gap, let's, let's work to make that right. And you're starting to see a little bit of that now, and hopefully it, it's a little bit more than just a, a moment in time. Well, this brings us to your company of color, which is something that you have been planning for years. You were joking <laughs> yeah. that people asked, you know, is this, was this in reaction to, <laughs> it's like, no, you don't yeah. develop a company and get a board together and have ideas <laughs> within a matter of weeks. Uh, right. So, so please share with us your mission for Of Color. Uh, this is the company that you, um, that basically inspired you to leave finally corporate America. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> uh, but tell us more about that and, and what you're hoping it will accomplish. Yeah. So, you know, going along with that theme of seeing color, we're a digital financial wellness platform that sees color. And we provide content and banking tools for employees built on how, you know, we, we save and spend and build our legacies differently. The financial wellness programs, for those who may not know, are employer benefit programs designed to improve employees' financial health, right? So just as you may get a gym subsidy that, you know, as a benefit that keeps you healthier, that's great. And your, your company may pay for that. But part of the reason you're doing that is because they want to keep you healthy so that you are take less fewer days off and that you are less of uh, an expense when it comes to their healthcare spend. So there are huge savings to be realized by employers who invest in these programs and specifically the, the financial health of the hardest hit employees, which tend to be people of color, like in the outside world where we're less well off, even if we make the same salary as our colleagues. And there are a ton of structural, not behavioral reasons for this. One of my favorites is that because we have a credit score that is perceived to be worse, and these are often used in salary offers, we may start at a lower base salary than our white colleagues. We have fewer support systems. We pay higher interest on good and bad debt. And, you know, there's a the black tax. We may be supporting less fortunate family. And while almost every financial services company has thrown their hat in the financial wellness ring, their digital programs suffer from low engagement from black and brown employees who then fail to see a change in their lives. 
So we're working to fix that. And if you had to take a guess, what would you think would be the first industry to really embrace of color this service? Yeah. So I think the auto industry is probably a, a good one. Any industry that has a good mix of employees that are of color, you know, a mix of salaried employees and hourly uh, wage employees. But look, I think every industry that has, I mean, if you have even a small employee base and there are people of color within that, you will see a benefit, especially when it comes to participation. You know, for a long time, a lot of these programs were kind of, you know, I use the example of the networks, right? You have NBC, CBS, uh, ABC, and they they basically have programming that feature people of color, but aren't the focus of it. So we're more like BET, right? So anyone can watch and engage. You know, you might not find it as relevant, but that's where we are. Can get involved, but we are purpose driven. We're we're driven to close the racial wealth gap, and we are built kind of along this kind of FUBU model, which is like for us, by us, with mm-hmm. a specific focus on how we, we we bank and use money differently. Would it behoove financial services companies to market specifically to Black communities in a way that, in the way that of color is, you know, in your understanding of the specific issues they're grappling with that are exclusive in some cases to their families, to their communities. I've heard over and over about how minority groups just sometimes don't feel like they're being heard, they're being understood, they're being marketed to, especially when it comes to financial services. We still feel like it is an industry run by white men for white men. What do you think financial services can learn from the model that you have created? First of all, I guess it's not really about marketing. This is not, you know, financial services will say, you know, we we only focus on the color green, right? We focus on money. And, and they'll take the same exact products and they'll market it. They'll have a commercial and they'll put it in the middle of fresh off the boat or something. And they will say, okay, done. It's, it's really about products. And we've always kind of been an afterthought. Financial services only tend to come around when, you know, to, to focusing on, on people of color when there's an opportunity for profit slash exploitation, such as we saw during the Great Recession. But there are tons of products out there just waiting to be built. We know, for example, that Black Americans rely more on insurance than inheritance to pass wealth to future generations. And yet we don't build products specifically around legacy creation for our population. You know, we can engineer things as complex as collateralized debt obligations and yet still can't package HBCU student loan debt to lower rates. You know, when I was growing up in the Caribbean, partner savings was a big deal. Uh, They also call it SUSU savings clubs across the African continent, where, you know, each member of the group makes a standard contribution to a common fund and, you know, the total contributions are given to a single member in a certain period. But that is not a savings option for me at Chase, (laughs) you know, and it's, it's kind of because we're an afterthought. And what needs to happen is you need investment in the creation of these products. I think what will happen when you do that is there'll be an awakening. So Hollywood was woken up when Tyler Perry movies had success. You know, Jordan Peele made a horror movie uh, and, and everyone said, wow, but, you know, people of color want to go to see horror movies. We didn't know that. And now everyone is rushing it. So I think, <laughs> I think ultimately you need to create these products and you need, you need investors to back the creation of these products to be able to, to say, okay, this is something specific that we're building that will meet your needs. We don't see that for populations of color. 
What we have seen up till now is unlike what you are doing, which is really creating these products and services that will further uh, the advancement of Black wealth and the wealth of uh, people of color. What we have seen, if anything, is things like prepaid cards. Uh, yeah. You know, Russell Simmons. I've talked about this at one point or another on mm-hmm. the show. Uh, you know, trying to serve the underbanked. And so rather than providing robust banking services for you, uh, we're going to give you a subpar product called a you know, a yep. prepaid card that has, by the way, a lot of fees. It's going to make me rich and you just yep. continue the cycle of poverty. I, I wonder what, what is your sort of criticism or take on that? And, and what are, it seems like there's nothing in between. Like it's either, yeah. you know, these sort of sub, <laughs> subpar products that don't really help anybody except the people who make them. Uh, and then something like your program of color, your, your company, which is really taking it to the next level. And I think um, holding black people to a much higher standard. Well, it's not even black people. It's really, it's holding corporations to a higher standard, right? Because this is an enterprise product. And when I focused in on the mission, which was to close the racial wealth gap, sounds crazy, but we're going to do it. I said, okay, you can't really help someone save if you are charging them, say, $20 a month for a savings product. That just doesn't make sense. It's counterintuitive. So I was trying to figure out a way where we could have corporations basically subsidize the financial health of their employees in a situation that's a win-win. So these employees of color are better off in terms of their financial health, and this reduces the overall benefit spend of the company. So there's a way to engineer this where people of color do not spend uh, in order to improve their financial health. Now, there are other, we're building essentially a platform and we launch in the fall, but we're building a platform that will hopefully, you know, over time release additional products. But that's one of the first ones we're doing is, is an enterprise product focused on, on personal financial management. You, you take stock of where you are, you patch your holes and you grow. In terms of the, the companies that are out there, their companies focused on building credit. They, frankly, I think they do it in a backwards way. And they're companies that have swooped in to fill the void that um, traditional financial services companies have left. Those are your alternative financial sectors, payday lenders, etc. They're all exploitive. But at the same time, they will argue that they are filling a need for liquid capital. And we saw that with PPP. You know, you had companies uh, that couldn't get access to capital at all. They were completely ignored by the distribution model for PPP. And what they had to do is they had to go to hard money lenders. And ultimately, those hard money lenders bailed them out. I mean, they're paying for it, uh, but they bailed them out. And that's the great irony of capital in America. It's that the poor spend so much to access their own money, uh, whereas the rich, they access their money for free. It's a a great irony. And, um, you know... uh, Mersa Baradaran is a professor that I admire greatly. And, and she, you know, in her book, The Color of Money, talks about that without malice, capital looking for yield will lead to exploitation, exploitation if there's structural inequities. I've kind of followed that philosophy and I've tried to, to say, okay, this is something that I will do, something I won't do, and be guided by that philosophy. What is best for the people of color? 
I'll tell you one thing, Amy, this is quite the year to come out with a business like yours in a recession, in the thick of a Black Lives Matters movement. I feel like if you're looking for press, don't even worry about hiring a publicist. <laughs> People will, the news will find you because you are a glimmer of hope, optimism in, in an otherwise really tough tough world. Yeah, no, I, I hope so. It's, it's look, um, it's these twin crises, COVID, then the police brutality issues. It's, it's really, it's, it's taking a toll. And I think what's happening now is that people are hopefully starting to go, oh, okay, so there is a real issue. It's funny, you know, I think back to last summer, and things were looking up for minority-owned businesses, right? So the number of companies, especially minority women, you know, had had grown by over 150% up till last summer. You know, headlines were out there talking about the the rise of Black women businesses, Black women making millions academy was a thing. Netflix just released a documentary. So there were shoots of progress that were coming out of the Great Recession. And now we're, we're, it's, it's, it's essentially a disaster. I, I read a study uh, just recently that said that close to just under 50% of, you know, small businesses of color were expecting to close in the next um, six months without intervention. Hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a very tough year and a, you know, a trying year. Tell me what a typical day is like for you as you're launching a business in a pandemic, sheltering at home. Yeah. So it is, it's kind of crazy to be, to be honest. Um, you know, we, when, you know, I mentioned that when we were starting, we didn't anticipate any of this. We'd been kind of, you know, planning for this for a while. I left a great company. I was rising quickly. I, I finally made it up to the executive ranks. But, you know, this, this idea was just eating at me at how to, to create this product. So I kind of shifted lane and, you know, my wife thought I was crazy. She probably thinks I'm still crazy. <laughs> but it's exciting. It started out the first couple of weeks just adjusting to the new normal, trying to get traction, trying to do so many things simultaneously, being heads down in development, trying to build products with the tech team, trying to get the brand right, trying to ensure that we're guided by our mission always. You know, at the same time, especially as an early stage company, you're always fundraising. So, you know, I will tell you that that has been made a little bit easier in the past few weeks. I've never before had inbound especially the vc world is very they they do things a certain way and you know if you don't get a warm introduction from someone who, who they've funded previously your emails will get ignored if they're cold but recently i've seen you know people reaching out and saying hey we've heard about what you're doing and we'd like to have a conversation that, that never ever 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 happens <laughs> So it's been it's been interesting. That is really good to know. Uh, wow, that's yeah. Whew, I'm so happy for you. Optimism. That's awesome, yeah. that because uh, it's we know. I mean, we've covered it on the show, and you know well, like getting funding. VC is just two percent of the overall. Oh yeah. Way that companies get started, and then within that two percent, most of that goes to frat guys, um, yeah. and then <laughs> whatever's yeah. left yeah. is like women, people of color, maybe. Yeah. No. So yeah, I um I started just bootstrapping at first. It was friends and family. I started asking around uh, a couple of years ago. Great, you know, practice for pitching. And, you know, I'm lucky to have a couple of friends that had done well in their own ventures, complete rags to riches stories and atypical for a fund of color to have somewhat of a network, you know, but, and I'm totally grateful for that support, but that can only take us so far. 
the scale of my vision requires additional funding uh, to build those products, to build additional tools um, that I think can really make a difference. And, you know, the other side of this is that they are ways to make more money. You talked about the rush card and, you know, right now there's a big push towards payday, uh, <laughs> essentially payday lending apps. They, they're called earned wage access apps now because it just, you know, again, communication is key. Um, but some of them out there, I believe, are exploitive. You know, they they'll, they may go on a tips model uh, to give you access to cash. Um, that amounts to uh, an APR in the hundreds when, when, when looked at on an annualized basis. So there, the, the VC community tends to want a 10x return, sometimes a 100x return on their money. And the model of, okay, we're only going to focus on this segment of the population isn't very popular, or we're going to we're going to make money. We know we could make more money doing it this way that's exploitive, but we're not going to do that. We're going to stay focused on our mission. And that's tricky when you're having a lot of these conversations. You know, the first question you get is, okay, this is a great tool. Why only offer it or why only have it targeted for people of color? And you have to, again, explain that there are all these other tools that, are, that, that aren't for us and that it's necessary. So it's a lot of, you know, explaining a lot of like trying to really hammer home your value proposition. And, and some, some people get it. And some are in it for the publicity. They want to say, okay, we're partnering with, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a founder of color. And some are in it for the real reasons. And it's fairly easy to figure the, the, who those people are. Well, congratulations. We'll be watching and I look forward to updates in the coming months. Yami, thank you so much for spending time with us. No worries at all. Thank you for having me, Furnish. I appreciate it. Check out ofcolor.com to learn more about Yami's company and how you can get involved. You're going to hear me say it again, but if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to So Money Podcast, a show dedicated to your financial empowerment, education, sharing candid stories, candid conversations on Mondays and Wednesdays with some amazing people from celebrities to athletes, entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, and millionaires next door. And on Fridays, I answer your money questions. So bring in those questions. Go to somoneypodcast.com, click on Ask Farnoosh, or hang out with me on Instagram at Farnoosh Tarabi and send me your questions there. Thanks for tuning in. Black Wealth Matters continues.